You can find your way in your Bibles to Gospel of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. We go verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. And we find ourselves now in John chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading verse 34. We'll read down to verse 43. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, who has blind, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. This is God's holy word. Let's ask Him for help. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in Thy law, O Lord. Grant us understanding that we might believe, that we might apply and live Your word. Lord, do Your word work this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you were telling the truth, you knew you were telling the truth, and somebody did not believe you? It can be quite frustrating, annoying, irksome. Well, ponder the Lord God, who speaks truth to us, in His Word, who reveals Himself, has revealed Himself through prophets and apostles and ultimately in His Word. And so few believe what He has said. This passage that we find ourselves here in John chapter 12 is really about unbelief. The word believe or did not, or the phrase did not believe occurs many times sprinkled throughout this section. And we're going to see three different kinds of unbelief that you need to be aware of so that you would believe. 
But before we get there, let me frame something of the context of this section in the Gospel of John. Remember, John wrote so that we would believe. So it would make sense that he would warn us about not believing. But this section in John's Gospel is, uh, is the final section of the public ministry of Jesus. Really, the, the book of John could be summarized uh, with the reality that He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. That's the first 12 chapters. And then chapters 13 and following are, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Okay, so the first 12 chapters, sometimes called the book of signs, it, it traces seven signs, miracles that Jesus gives and instruction related to that. And then the last half of the book, Jesus is going to focus in on His disciples. In fact, chapters 13 through 17 is going to be one lengthy discourse of Jesus' teaching His disciples in a small group setting at the Last Supper. We find ourselves on the tail end of Jesus' public ministry. These are some of his final words that he's going to say openly and publicly. He's just entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's uh, the Sunday before his execution and he's giving some final words of warning to the Jewish people who were rejecting him as their Messiah. He's going to warn them in this section about unbelief. He's warning them, first of all, of what I'm calling confused unbelief. Notice in verses 34 through 36, Jesus has just said in verse 33 that when, uh, when He is lifted up, He says, but He... I'm sorry, verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death he was going to die. We talked about that last week, that Jesus referring to his own death in a kind of double meaning kind of way. He was literally lifted up from the earth through crucifixion, but also lifting up can also have the meaning of exaltation, to be lifted up. And so Jesus describes his future death just several days from this point in time as his being lifted up. And the crowd understood that as his death, as his execution, as a crucifixion. And so they have questions related to this. In the midst of their not believing what he says, they, they kind of challenge him in verse 34. It says, The crowd answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So, this group of people, they, they say, Jesus, how can you say that the Son of Man is to be lifted up, that the Son of Man is to die? When we read our Bibles, it would appear that the Christ is to remain forever. And that's true, right? If, if you think of different messianic passages written hundreds of years before Jesus comes, there are some of them that would indicate that the future Messiah would have an eternal kingdom, that He would be a... Uh, he would be God's forever king. For instance, a, a famous one, Isaiah 9, 6, one that we quote often around Christmas time and sometimes preach on around Christmas time. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal, Forever, Father, Prince of Peace, 
There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Very clear passage that Messiah's kingdom will be a forever kingdom with the assumption that He is a forever king. Psalm 89, verse 4, I will establish your seed, speaking of David, forever and build up your throne to all generations. Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So there's numerous Old Testament passages that speak of the future Messiah, that He would be a forever king with a forever kingdom, a forever priest. And so this crowd is saying, well, how can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up when we read our Bibles and it says the future king will be a forever king? They're confused. They're confused. And there's obviously a kind of irony here. John likes irony. Because the resolution comes with an empty grave, right? He is a forever king. He does die, but He rises from the dead to live forever and ever. But the fascinating thing is Jesus Jesus doesn't give that explanation. Now, He has on occasion talked about that reality. In fact, He says in John chapter 10 in His Good Shepherd discourse, He says, "What I have the authority to lay down my life. No man takes my life away from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. He even hinted at it in John chapter 2 when he says, destroy this temple and what? I will raise it up in three days. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. But here he doesn't go through that explanation. It's quite fascinating. His response comes in verse 35. It says, so Jesus said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. So Jesus, He doesn't go through a thorough explanation, but He describes Himself as light. And He says, the light is going to be among you a little while longer. And then the light is going to be gone. Make sure you walk in the light Wow, you have the light. Now, this is not the first time Jesus describes Himself as light in the Gospel of John, right? That famous one comes in John 8.12 where He says, I am what? The light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. And when we were in that section in the Gospel of John, I mentioned that Jesus is alluding to Himself as the light of Namely, specifically the light that guided the Hebrews in the wilderness. The the light cloud by night and the, the, the cloud of smoke by day. He's referring to himself as the glory of God. And, and, and obviously in his incarnation, he's using that to point them to him, to follow him. And so here he's, he's again using this imagery of light but also warning them that they need to respond to the light. And Again, as I mentioned, this whole section is about believing in Jesus, seeing Him in His glory and responding properly. And so, in the midst of their confusion, instead of giving a thorough explanation, Jesus here summons them to believe in the light while they have the light. 
That's what he goes on to say in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. J.C. Ryle comments on this and says, It is noteworthy that our Lord makes no direct answer to the question of the Jews. He only warns them in a very solemn manner of the danger they were in of letting their day of grace slip away unimproved. He draws a figure from the light and and acknowledged importance of walking and journeying while we have the light. By the light, evidently He means Himself as the light of the world who is going to be with them a, a little longer. My day is drawing close. The sun will soon set. And so, they're confused. They're confused about Messiah. In the midst of their confused unbelief, Jesus counsels them to believe in the light, to believe what He said already. And you see, friends, this is always the reality. You see, as, as the great teacher in the church, early church, Augustine says, believe in order to understand. Sometimes we flip it backwards and say, unless I understand it, I'm not going to believe it. But the Bible would say, believe in order to understand. When you believe, when your heart is humble and ready to receive what God has said, then the understanding will come. Then the the fuzziness and the confusion will begin to go away. I observed this happen in my Azer Kenigdao. You know what an Azer Kenigdao is? That's a suitable helper in the Hebrew. Before she was my suitable helper. She was raised Roman Catholic. And um, she began to have questions about what she had been taught. She saw a close friend of her begin to go to a Bible-believing church. And so she started to go to this Bible-believing church. And her friend said, well, if you're going to go to this Bible-believing church, you need to go to Roman Catholic catechism as well. And so, for a period of time, she's going to catechism class at the Roman Catholic church. One time of the week, she's going to Protestant Bible-believing church. And, but in her heart, she knew that the Bible was true. And over and over, she would hear in the catechism class, well, the church teaches this. And then over here, she would hear, well, the Bible teaches this. Well, the church teaches this. Well, the Bible teaches this. And she began responding more and more to the light of the truth of God's Word. And eventually, it became clear. And friend, that's, that's always the case. You need to respond to the light of the truth. What God reveals, you are responsible to respond with a heart of faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And as you believe and hold on to the truth of God's Word and what God has revealed to you through the Scriptures, He'll help make things more plain, more clear. So friend, if you are sitting here and have tons of questions, you're in a state of confusion. Believe what God has said in His Word. Or maybe you you have believed for many years, but recently your faith has been rocked and upheaved, maybe by the failure of a church leader or by some kind of betrayal. Hold on to what you know to be true in the Scriptures. Believe what God has said. 
Notice verse 36. Jesus now departs from them. I'm sorry, the last part of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke and He went away and hid Himself from them. So Jesus goes away from the crowd. In a sense, the the light goes out and the curtain comes closed. And now Jesus goes on to give some explanation. And this gives us the second point to not only beware of confused unbelief, beware of concrete unbelief. In verse 37, it says, But though He had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. John the Apostle here explains the situation. And he explains it with Scripture. He says that they had so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. And then he quotes from Isaiah in verse 38 and 39. But let's just stop and ponder that reality for a second. Jesus had performed many signs among them. Did He not? In fact, John himself records seven of these signs. In John chapter 2, Jesus changes the water into wine. In John uh, chapter 4, the end of it, Jesus, by speaking a word, heals the nobleman's son. In John chapter 5, there's the man who was an invalid, sitting by the pool, uh, trying to get some therapeutic waters. He hasn't been able to walk for some 37 years. And Jesus tells him to pick up his mat and walk. And he picks up his mat and walks. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the multitude with fish burgers. Bread and fish. In John chapter... Nine is the man who was born blind. Jesus hawks a loogie in the dirt, (laughs) rubs it on his eyes, and tells him to go wash. And he washes, and he can see. And that glorious climactic sign miracle of John chapter 11 where Jesus breaks up a funeral. He breaks up a funeral. People are sobbing, blubbering over Lazarus' death. And Jesus says, roll the stone away. Lazarus, come forth. Now this is tremendous, right? Now, now and, and, and John tells us at the end of John that if he were to have recorded all the sign miracles that Jesus did, there would not be enough books in the world. The the books would fill up the world with all the miracles that He did. And so, these people saw the miracles. They saw them over and over and over and over. And yet, they did not believe They were hardened in their unbelief. I mean, even let's just take this last miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember the response of the religious leaders to that? I, I mean, 
If there was softness of heart, they might have said, well, I mean, raising somebody from the dead, maybe, maybe, maybe we got this guy all wrong. Maybe we need to do a little bit more research. Maybe we need to ask him a little bit more questions. None of that. In John 11.47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our, both our place and our nation. Do you remember Caiaphas stood up? And as high priest that year, he says, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And from that day on, they planned to kill him. That's hardness of heart. Instead of seeing the signs he was doing and humbling their hearts, questioning their own beliefs, their own presuppositions, they plowed forward in hardness of heart and plotted his murder. In fact, then later on in chapter 12 and 12.10, it says the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. They not only wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus. I mean, this here is a kind of cemented, concrete, cured hardness of heart that is seemingly impenetrable. It's very sobering. And John tells us in verse 38, don't be shocked by this. It was prophesied long ago. This was to fulfill, verse 38, the word of Isaiah the prophet in which he spoke, Lord, whom has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now we don't have enough time to go there, but if you were to go in your own time to Isaiah chapter 53, here Isaiah the prophet is writing 700 years before Jesus is born and he's spelling out to a T the reality that the future servant of Yahweh would be crucified, that he would be executed unjustly. He would... Just to quote one verse from that section, Isaiah 53, 6, We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah would write. And in the midst of detailing this glorious passage of the future crucifixion of Messiah, the beginning of it in verse 1 of Isaiah 53 says... Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right at the outset of that servant song, there's this question, this assumption, people aren't going to believe it. They're not going to believe either the report, the message, nor the might, the arm of the Lord. They're not going to believe it. And so, John here is recording that Isaiah prophesied this unbelief. And, and by the way, uh, this section uh, that he quotes from, uh, not Isaiah 53, but the falling one in Isaiah 6, it's used over and over throughout the New Testament. It's one of the most frequently cited sections in all the New Testament to describe 
Israel's hardness of heart in rejecting Messiah so that the gospel would go to the Gentile world. It's part of God's explanation. And think how important that would have been, especially in the early church. I mean, here is Israel, God's people for thousands of years. And you're telling me Jesus is the Messiah? They don't even believe in Him, right? You're telling me this is the King of Israel when Israel doesn't believe in Him? And so over and over, the end of Acts, Romans 9-11, through 11, the explanation is God had purposed this all along. It was part of His plan. But notice how He explains it in verse 39. For this reason they could not believe. Now this is sobering. They could not believe. Now, the could-nots of the Gospel of John are frequent. Uh, John 3.3 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. John 3.5 No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come unto me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 66, 65. He says, no one can come unto me unless it's been granted him by the Father. Uh, John chapter 15, around verse 3 or 4. No, that you cannot bear fruit unless you're abiding in the vine. You cannot. There's all these cannots, but most of the times within those contexts, the cannots are highlighted by the wretchedness of man. And and that's true to be sure in in all those contexts, and even in this context, but but the cannot in this context is more related heavenward. This is quite a shocking passage. Because he goes on to quote Isaiah forty or Isaiah chapter six, here in John twelve forty, and says he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. This is why preachers don't go verse by verse through books of the Bible. <laughs> Because you come across verses like these and you say, what on earth? What does this mean? How do you preach this? God hardened their hearts? God blinded their eyes? God caused them not to believe? Now the context of of this citation from Isaiah, our young people are actually memorizing Isaiah 6, 1-3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon His throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, and with two they, uh, they flew, and with two they covered their feet. And, the, and the, the, the seraphim are crying out, Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. And then Isaiah, in the midst of that vision, says, Woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And then God brings the, the fiery coal to His lips. <coughs> and then God says, Who will go for me? Who's going to preach for me? And then Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. And then He tells Isaiah, that He's going to harden their hearts. This is the passage that's quoted. 
He's going to blind their eyes. He's going to plug their ears so they will not believe. What is going on here? Well, I mean, I thought God wants people to believe. I said at the outset, we don't like it when people don't believe it. So why would God do this? Well, in each of the passages, as far as I can tell, that speak of God hardening people's hearts, blinding people's eyes, it's always after a lengthy period of God revealing Himself and people refusing Him. This is a kind of judicial hardening that God does. It's a kind of God, when people refuse His light, He turns off the light. So, let me explain first of all what this does not mean. This does not mean that the Israelites wanted to believe. And they're saying, you know, we want to believe in Messiah. We want to believe in Jesus. And God says, no salvation for you. Come back one year. No, that's not what's going on here. Nor is God actively creating unbelief in the hearts of these people. God, you know, Psalm 11 says that God is righteous and He loves righteousness. God doesn't actively create unbelief in people's hearts. He doesn't have to. It's already there. So in what sense does God harden people's hearts? Well, I think one of the best explanations, it comes in the early church. I mentioned Augustine earlier. And I think within this very context, the illustration is there. How does Jesus refer to Himself? He refers to Himself as light. Walk in the light while you have the light. Believe in the light while you have the light. The light is a perfect illustration of this. Because if I were to ask the question, why is it dark at night? How would you answer the question? Well, because there's no light. Does, but, but then if we further ask the question, does the light cause the darkness? I think you'd have to say, well, no and yes. No, the light does not cause the darkness in an active sense of creating darkness, but in a passive sense, as the light is withdrawn, then there's darkness. In a similar way, God hardens the heart in the sense that He withdraws His light in a, very, in, a, in a passive way. God doesn't create unbelief. He just withholds His light. We can see this. We see this early on the pages of Scripture. Remember Pharaoh in the book of Exodus? said that God had purposed to harden Pharaoh's heart. And again, God would reveal Himself through those signs, those different plagues of Egypt. And, 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 and Pharaoh might soften his heart for a little bit, but then he would harden his heart. And he would say, no, I will not let those people go. And then there would be another sign, miracle, and, and, and uh, this plague, would, he would cry uncle and say, okay, 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 I'll let them go. And then, and then he would change his mind. He would harden his heart. And the fascinating thing is when you get to the end of the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, in Deuteronomy, 
chapter 29, verse 2 through 4, it says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. The sobering reality is by the time you get to the end of the Exodus, where Israel is about to go into the promise of land, while Exodus records Pharaoh's great hardness of heart, by the end of it, God speaks of Israel's heart being hard. In a very similar way, we see that this kind of reversal here in the book of John, you would think Israel would be the receptive one ready to receive their Messiah, ready to enter into the promised land. But here, they refuse their Messiah. Their hearts are hardened despite all the sign miracles. They're settled in their hardness of heart. And here, John the Apostle explains this as God's judicial hardening because they refused to believe Jesus when He came. So God gave them over. They've gone beyond the point of no return. This is probably very similar to what uh, Matthew records at the end of Matthew chapter 12 when he speaks of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That they, they had so hardened their hearts in attributing the, the, the work of the Spirit of Jesus to demons that God said, I'm not going to save you. You've refused my light, therefore I will shut off the light. And He gives them over. We see something similar as well, I think, in Romans chapter 1. Again, God in a very kind of passive way, three times it's repeated over, and God gave them over. And God gave them over. And God gave them over. God doesn't have to create unbelief or sinful desires in the human heart. He's constantly restraining sinful desires and unbelief in the midst of humanity. All God has to do is just let off the restraints. And in a sense, give man more freedom to do what he wants to do. And man's gravitational pull is towards unbelief and darkness. And so, what John is telling us here is that God, this is, this is not outside of God's sovereign purposes. And again, we can see even the good purposes that God would design in this judicial hardening of the Israelites, namely, exactly what Caiaphas said in the midst of his wicked, vile hardness of heart when he speaks better than what he knows. He says, you guys know nothing. It's expedient for one man to die on behalf of the nation. And John records that year he was prophesying that Jesus would die not only for the people, but also for the scattered children of God. The very hardness of Israel's heart was what nailed Jesus to a cross. And what has worked for your salvation and deliverance. We also see this as part of God's purpose in disseminating the Gospel globally to the Gentile world.
And so, we see here this sobering reality that God, sometimes after prolonged revelation, sometimes judicially hardens and gives people over. And so if we were to ask the question, well, obviously we're not in a position to see the sign miracles of Jesus over and over like the Israelites were. But if God, the Almighty, hardens hearts today, who among us would be in the greatest position to be hardened? It would seem to me those who have the greatest privilege of the light of God's truth. Were they to reject that truth? Were they to hear it over and over and not believe it? The people in most danger of being hardened in heart are people like me and people like you. That if we sit in the midst of of the hearing of God's Word over and over and don't respond with a genuine heart of belief, we put ourselves in perilous danger. So my friend, if you're sitting here and you've not yet trusted in this Lord Jesus, this One who Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, who would be bruised for our iniquities, who would be chastened for our well-being, The iniquity of us all would fall upon Him. By His wounds we are healed. This One who would be lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth and die on that Roman cross so that you and I can be forgiven. To refuse that message, to refuse Him as your priest, as your King, is to be in a most dangerous position. Some of you young people... How many sermons have you heard? How many Sunday school lessons have you heard? How many times have you heard the Word of God opened up over and over during family Bible time or or, or during Christian education and you've heard the Word of God over and over? Oh dear young people, believe Believe what God has said. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Him. If you refuse it, there may come a point of no return. There may come a season in which you turn your back upon the light of God's truth and you descend into the abyss of darkness never to come back. Oh dear young people, Respond to the light of God's truth. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Him. He's a kind Savior. But His offer of kindness and grace does not last forever. Jesus says, walk in the light while you have the light. Believe in the light while the light is here. But there may come a time where God will shut off the light. And so believe, believe. We say, Pastor Matt, I don't know if I believe. Well, believe! And believe until you know that you believe. Trust in Him. And keep believing. And don't stop believing. In the midst of all the cries for you to stop believing, you keep believing in Jesus. But also we need to understand that while... Even a person's heart may be regenerated. 
born again and they have a heart of belief, there can be varying degrees, even dare I say of hardness of heart, even in a believer's life. That while he would not be given over to a hardness of heart that, 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 that John speaks of as Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 6, there can be degrees of hardness even in the believer's life. An insensitivity to sin. A yawning over the great realities of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. A yawning over the grace of God that exists in your life. An indifference to who God is. In fact, Mark chapter 6 and verse 51 and 52, Jesus speaks of the disciples themselves as having a kind of hardness of heart. It says, Then they got into the boat with Him, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And so, friend, even as a believer sitting here this morning, you need to cultivate a soft, tender heart. Remember years ago when I used to toss the pill around the baseball? Whenever you got a new baseball glove, what did you have to do with that glove? You had to break it in, right? You know, my dad would give me this leather soap and you had to rub it on there and then put a baseball in there and put rubber bands and you're trying to make this thing softer and more palatable. In a similar way, we we need to have soft hearts that are tender to what God has said in His Word so He can impress the truths of His Word upon our hearts. Let me give you some little bit of help in that. Area, listen to the word with humble faith. Isaiah 66 2. This is the one to whom I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Have a heart that is sensitive to the word of God, sensitive to receive and believe what God has said in his word, sensitive to the conviction of sin, sensitive to correct things that you've believed that were wrong, sensitive to correct the way that you've been living. Keep short accounts with God. Don't conceal sin. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who what? Confesses and forsakes will find mercy or compassion. Keep short accounts with God. Be, Be quick to confess your sin and lay hold of the glorious gospel of Christ to warm your heart that Jesus died for me. The name for gospel repentance. A repentant heart that's motivated by the reality that Jesus died for you. Beware of concrete heart. Now, notice in this Section or concrete unbelief. Notice at the end of the section in verse 41, this shocking statement. It's almost one of those statements, you know, when, as you read through the Bible, you sometimes don't read carefully and, and you might miss it. And maybe you missed it. It's been read twice already this morning. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. He's quoting from Isaiah 6, right? 
I said the context of Isaiah 6 in God speaking of the hardening of the heart, the blinding of the eyes is in the context of Isaiah's vision of Yahweh of hosts in the temple. And here John says that when Isaiah was writing that, Isaiah was speaking of the glory of of his glory. Now the question obviously is whose glory? It's a pronoun, right? His glory. It seems to me that within this context, the glory that he's speaking of is the light that's mentioned earlier on in this section. Namely, the glory of Jesus. In other words, when Isaiah saw Yahweh high and lifted up and the throne of his robe filling the temple 700 years before Jesus was born of Mary, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus in that temple. He saw a pre-incarnate Christ. That theophany was a Christophany before Jesus was ever born. Because Jesus has a nature as God and man. And while He was born in time and space in the fullness of time with a real physical body, He has a nature that's eternal that would sometimes reveal itself sprinkled throughout the history of God's people as recorded in the Old Testament. And here we find out Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. Now, that should make you think of seeing the glory of Jesus. How did John start out the Gospel? John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah saw His glory. Unbelief is a refusal to see the glory of Jesus. John writes so that we would see Jesus with a believing sight. In fact, that's often how John refers to believing as sight. That's why he refer when he says in John chapter three and verse fourteen, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. So that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Well, what did they have to do towards the serpent? They had to look. They had to see with the eyes of faith. Which is what we have to do. We have to look to Jesus with the eyes of faith. That's the antidote to unbelief. That's the antidote to confused unbelief. That's the antidote to concrete hard uh, uh, unbelief. You see Jesus in His glory and you believe in Him. But not only beware of confused unbelief, concrete unbelief. Lastly, beware of covert unbelief. Or concealed unbelief. This, this last one's tricky. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Wow. John says that many, even of the rulers, believed in Him. And we read that, and if we stopped there, we'd say, yeah! Right? But it doesn't stop there. It's evident that this belief 
wasn't a genuine saving belief. Because they're not willing to believe even unto death. They're not willing to believe when it costs. It says many believed. Many. Not a few. It says many even of the rulers believed. And this... this we, we see this early on in the Gospel of John. Remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. He, he was saying we, speaking that there's other Pharisees, there's other leaders who are also believing. <clears throat> but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. This takes us back to chapter 9, right? Remember in chapter 9, the blind man, he was kicked out of the synagogue, cut off from both the uh, social life of Israel, but even the economical life of Israel. Unable to buy and sell. There was a great cost to publicly identifying with Jesus. And then here's this sobering statement in verse 43. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Gasp. Because friends, the approval of man, the glory of man, is very seductive. It's very powerful. I mean, anybody here want to be publicly shamed? <laughs> anybody here want to be belittled and thought a bumbling idiot? Anybody here want to be considered a bigot? We like the golf clap. We like to be thought well of by others. In fact, when Jesus gives that parable of the soils and there's the four different soils and there's only the one soil that bears fruit, uh, when He throws it amongst the rocky soil, which is the soil with a, with a thick layer of rock, bedrock right underneath it, He says the sun comes up and it scorches it so that it doesn't bear fruit. It seems to receive the Word with joy, but it never bears fruit. And you remember Jesus' explanation of that is that the sun that comes out that scorches it is the afflictions of this world and persecution. Persecution. The cost of believing in Jesus. And I don't know if you noticed, but believing things that Christians have believed for thousands of years these days probably isn't going to win you popularity in the world today. In fact, a recent example of that you may have seen in the news where Max Lucado, who's not exactly considered the great defender of the faith, but nonetheless, you know, he's written many books that many evangelicals have read and and, and liked. He's invited to do a video sermon at the Washington Cathedral. 
And then you can just hear the progressives, you know, scurrying through the internet to find some dirt on Max Lucado. Sure enough, 14 years ago, he preached a sermon against same-sex marriage. Sadly and tragically, at least in this instance, Max Lucado loved the approval of man rather than the approval of God because he publicly apologized for that. I might hurt somebody's feelings out there. I'm so sorry. Friend, the heat's coming. Whose approval do you love more? The heat is coming. A.W. Pink says, if we, if any should read these lines who are attempting to be secret disciples of the Lord Jesus, fearing to come out into the open and acknowledge by lip and life that He is their Lord and Savior, let them beware. Remember that the first of the eight classes mentioned in Revelation 21.8, when it mentions a list of those who will be cast into the lake of fire, the first one are the fearful sometimes also translated the cowardly. And that's in the context of all the persecution prophesied in the book of Revelation. It says the the fearful or the cowardly are cast out. Friends, this isn't a day for wimpy Christianity. This isn't a day for popularity contests. Calvin puts it like this, there's nothing less reasonable than the truth, than that truth should not differ from falsehood, and that the bread of life... I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong quote on that. This is from Pink. Oh, the madness of their miserable choice. Of what avail would the good opinion of the Pharisees be when the hour of death overtook them? In what stead will it stand them when they appear before the judgment throne of God. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? And then this is the quote from Calvin. Earthly honors may be called golden shackles binding a man. Earthly honors are kind of golden shackles that bind a man. Friend, die to the smiles of the world. Resolve that Jesus and believing in Him is worth it. This One who died for your eternal life, who bore the guilt of sin on your behalf and rose from the dead so that you can be eternally part of His family. What does it profit the temporal smiles of the world were you to end up in hell? Nothing. Calvin says they're but golden shackles that chain many a man. Turn from them and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus and His saving work on the cross. Believe. Don't delay. Because God might just shut out the lights. Thomas Chalmers, the Scottish Presbyterian, there's a story of him and his interaction with a child when a woman 
came to Dr. Chalmers one day and said, Dr. Chalmers, I can't get my child to come to the Savior. I've talked to her, but it's of no use. Chalmers thought to himself that she must be lacking in wisdom and said, let me talk to your daughter and I'll see what can be done. And so he met with the girl, gauged her in conversation. He says, you've been bothered by a good deal about the matter of your soul's salvation, haven't you? Suppose I say to your mother that you don't want to be talked about the matter for a whole year. Will that be okay? The Scottish girl hesitated a little and then replied, Well, I I don't think it would be safe for me to put off the matter for a whole year. Something might happen to me. I might die before then. Yes, that's so, Chalmers replied. Suppose we say six months. Well, the girl responded again. I, I, I don't think it'd be safe to put it off. The girl was beginning to get the point. Why put it off? Why delay? You might die, or God might turn out the lights. As Jesus said in 12, 35, and 36, For a little while longer the light is among you. While you have the light, believe the light so that you may become sons of the light. Let's pray. O great light of the world, grant faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.